Yes. Hello, and welcome to the podcast where we look at theology, tradition, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and we throw it all away. We ask, what do I believe? Why? And what does the Bible say? Anyway, and we build reconstructed faith. Yes, welcome back to Reconstructed Faith, or welcome if this is your first time here. We attempt to remove all presupposed theology, any pre-existing doctrine, whatever it is we already believe about the Bible, whether it is traditional or otherwise, and read the Bible in its own context. We're learning to put our mind into the framework of the Bible instead of putting the Bible into the framework of our mind. Uh, the idea is to look at the culture of the time, the existing paradigms, what belief systems were already in place in order to get a greater context of the text because context is king. Sadly, there are a lot of Christians who either don't read their Bible, read paraphrases, or if they do read a proper word-for-word -word translation, they don't know the first thing about hermeneutics or context. And that is why we are here. Listen. According to the 2019 census information, 64% uh, of Americans consider themselves Christians. 40% of these so-called Christians attend church regularly, which, by the way, uh, regularly means once a month. So, 40% of people who claim to be Christian go to church at least 12 times a year. Impressive. Wow. You think that is sobering? 7% uh, of Americans read their Bible more than once a week. And 3% read their Bible more than four times a week. So those are going to be the everydayers, the uh, you know Bible in a year kind of people. Uh, now, I will admit it is possible that this is only people who physically read their Bible and does not include apps or audio, but I'm not sure actually that I buy that um, because you, we can look at the lack of sound theology around us. Um, we can look at the uh, number of pastors that say whatever they want from the platform and there is no one in their churches who knows the Bible well enough to be like, Hold up! You said what? So, here's what we can do about it. Um, you know, other than homeschool, other than support our local schools and do everything we can to get general literacy up in America, which is very important anyway, um, because if you didn't know this, one in five males under the age of 40 cannot read above a fifth grade level. Literacy is dead. And the number one thing we can do to get people reading Bibles is to make sure they can read. Uh, as far as biblical literacy goes, as far as biblical literacy goes, I am building a website for Reconstructed Faith. I'm putting out ads on Facebook and anywhere else 
that will let me buy ad space, and uh, I need your help to do these things. Let's support biblical literacy together. Attached to this podcast is a link to my Patreon, where you can give one, five, or ten dollars a month to Reconstructed Faith to build this website, to build an ad campaign. If Patreon is not your thing, I have included as well my PayPal email in the description for one-time donations. I know I don't have money right now, and if that's where you were at, I get it. Like and share the podcast. Like and share the podcast. Like and share the podcast, okay? Leave your review on whatever platform you consume this podcast on. It is more likely to pop up as recommended if you leave reviews. That's how the algorithms work. If you do join my Patreon, you get the script, you get a full transcript for when I go off script, you get whatever other show notes there may be, like verses and websites, uh, links to whatever YouTube videos or otherwise that I have used in research. Uh, when I get enough support, there will be shirts and coffee mugs and things like that. I really haven't thought about merch yet. But the support, but the more support Reconstructed Faith gets, the more reach we can have. It is so important to me that we get the Bible into the minds of Christians everywhere, but not just the Bible. A knowledge of how to study the Bible and how it all works together. There is one other thing you can do. Start your own podcast. Whether it's uh, 10-minute daily devotionals or full-on theological essays like we've been doing here or something else. Maybe you think about God while you tend your garden. A podcast would be a great way to talk about that experience. If you do start a podcast, you should use Buzzsprout. You can use it for free, and you have access to a free website, free mixing and mastering. Not only that, Buzzsprout will publish your podcast everywhere podcasts are found. I use Buzzsprout, and Reconstructed Faith is on Apple, Google, Spotify, uh, Amazon has podcasts now, if you didn't know that, and I'm on there. Uh, Stitcher, Deezer, and a bunch of other podcast apps I've never even heard of. If you do start a podcast and you do use Buzzsprout, use the link in the description. My affiliate link will get you a $20 Amazon gift card when you start using or switch to Buzzsprout. Do it. Do it now! Okay, so... Now that the ads are out of the way, I do apologize, but that's just how the world works. Let's do a recap of what we've looked at so far. We talked about sin. The wages of sin is death. That is very important to remember for this episode. Sin came into the world, created entropy, and now things die. The wages of sin is literally death, okay? You need to get this. Because of sin, things die. We are born with original sin. 
into a state of depravity. When our bodies die, we either fellowship with and worship our king forever, or we don't, because hell is real. And it's the only other destination on Judgment Day. But if we are born depraved, how can we possibly enter the kingdom if we are born sinners? Well, since the wages of sin is death, only blood can atone for sin. For about 1,400 years, the Jews had to sacrifice bulls and goats and lambs and doves and sprinkle blood on God's mercy seat and pour blood on the altar to atone for sin. The Passover lamb, we learned, was a spotless lamb without blemish. Its blood was spread on the doorposts of the Israelites and the angel of death passed over them. Okay? If you remember the last episode, the blood of a spotless lamb protected them from death, which is, as I reiterate over and over and over and over, is the wages of sin. Jesus was God's Passover lamb. He lived as a man in perfect harmony with the law. He never committed personal sin. And because he was born of a virgin, he did not inherit the sin of Adam. That is original sin. So he was sinless, spotless, so to speak, and took our death for our sins and died on the cross for those who would believe. And then he rose, which is today's topic. There are Christians out there that have bought into the historical Jesus fallacy and don't believe in miracles or resurrection. We will briefly touch on the apologetics of the resurrection, how we can look at cultural and historical clues to prove that the actual physical resurrection was far more likely given the evidence than any other conclusion. Okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. Um, that's not what we do. If that's your thing, look up William Lane Craig. Uh, I don't always agree with his theology because he's either a Molinist or a Wesleyan Armenian. He's made both claims at various points in his career. Uh, but when it comes to apologetics, he is the freaking man. Uh, I am more focused on the theology of the resurrection, why it matters that he rose, and what it means for us. Okay. So unless you're a charismatic, we can pretty much agree that we don't really see people coming back to life or being healed or the casting out of demons and mental illness and such these days. And there is a growing movement in the church completely embracing scientific reason, which I'm not opposed to using science to explain our faith. I do it all the time. It's what apologists do. However, when we let science explain away our faith, that is when we're putting more faith in science and human reason than we are the word of God. And that is idolatry, and it's a problem. I bring this up to say that there are those who have you believe in a so-called historical Jesus that never performed miracles and, most of all, stayed dead. Because those things are, quote, impossible. So, let's first Ask, why is the resurrection necessary? Do I really need to believe that he rose again? I mean, that's pretty crazy stuff, right? Why is the resurrection important? Why is it necessary? Well, 
Jesus made seven I am statements. I am being God's name for himself, which were claims of his divinity. He also claimed to be the son of God's. Jesus' resurrection goes a long way to prove these claims. These were a people surrounded by the supernatural. I won't go as far as to say that miracles were commonplace, but they weren't rare either. Uh, Jewish leaders, priests, and Pharisees had rituals for exorcism. Um, God could heal and even cure leprosy through the Levites and Levitical rituals and practices. Um, the Hebrews, well, most of them anyway, um, the Sadducees only believed in the Torah, actually, and therefore did not believe in any kind of resurrection or afterlife, just in Sheol in its original sense as death and the grave. But most Hebrews, most Hebrews, by the time of Christ, believed in a resurrection at the end of time on Judgment Day, where we will all rise to be judged. Samuel was brought back to life to talk to Saul as one example of a pre-Christ resurrection. But no one had ever raised themselves from the dead. That would be a truly one-of-a-kind, godlike feat. So to deny the resurrection is to deny Christ's divinity. Also, the wages of sin is death, if you remember. If Jesus had stayed dead... That would mean that he too was under the power of sin because death is the result of sin. But if Jesus rose, then he did indeed conquer sin by defying death. And in him we are free from the bondage of sin and death and hell, which is the second death. It really is the linchpin of Christianity. If Christ didn't rise... Not only was he not who he said he was, not God, not the Son of God, but then we must question the veracity of all his claims and ultimately question our faith altogether. So what are the facts? Let's start with the stuff we know for sure. We know that Jesus existed and that he was crucified. We have evidence of this outside the Bible. We have the, rice, we have the writings of Tacitus who wrote about Nero blaming and killing Christians whom got their name from Christus, who suffered extreme penalty at the hands of Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Now that sounds like Jesus, Christus being the Latin for Christ. He said of the Christians that they practiced mischievous superstition, that even under, du even under duress broke out in Judea and then even in Rome. Tacitus was born in 56 AD and wrote his Annals in 109. So this was written less than 100 years after the events by a Roman historian was, who was obviously not a Christian, um, calling the faith a mischievous superstition. We have the Babylonian Talmud that was written between 70 and 200 AD, and is a collection of rabbinical writings, which means written by Jews who didn't believe in Christ, which says that on the eve of Passover, Yeshu was hung. We have Josephus, although some question the, authentic the, authentic bleh, the authenticity of his accounts, pardon me, and we have Pliny, 
a Roman governor from the 2nd century who wrote some letters about dealing with Christians in 112 AD and talked about their worship of Jesus as a god. So we can see from historical evidence outside the Bible, evidence from people who were not Christians, that his crucifixion was considered a historical fact even then. Most don't deny his crucifixion. It is the death and therefore resurrection that is in question. So the first attack often made on the resurrection is to question whether or not Jesus died. Romans were professional killers, sometimes crucifying as many as 100 people a day. If the Romans said, this man is dead, then he was dead. Interesting fact, the, uh, the AMA, that is the American Medical Association, put out a peer-reviewed article stating that Jesus was dead prior to being stabbed with the spear because blood and water spilled out, which is indicative of an exploded heart. So, if modern medical professionals can say with certainty in a peer-reviewed article that Jesus was dead, we now have the expertise of professional killers and the expertise of modern medicine telling us that Jesus was dead. Okay? We have the historical proof that Jesus lived and was crucified, and we have expert opinion, both ancient and modern, that he was dead. Jesus was dead. Jesus died on the cross. He was dead. He was dead. Just in case you don't believe me, we have no case ever in history of someone surviving crucifixion. He was dead. In case you didn't get it the first time. He was dead. D-E-A-D, dead, okay? So we know he died. What does that do for us? Well, the swoon theory is out of the way or any argument based on the fallacy of Jesus not being dead. We know he died. So what do we do with the empty tomb? How do we know it was really empty? Well, Jesus' enemies themselves, these are the Pharisees, said, the tomb is empty. His followers have stolen the body. But no such thing would have occurred. You see, Jews don't work on the Sabbath. And they especially don't work on the Passover. It breaks Sabbath law. The disciples themselves, or anyone else who would steal the body, would be subject to flogging or even stoning under Jewish law for breaking the Passover Sabbath. You see, these weren't just religious laws. This was actually their legal code as well. So to break their religious law was to break the law. So, you know, it's one of the reasons Jesus' body was so quickly removed, if you remember from last time. And at two, the tomb was guarded by Romans. And the punishment for falling asleep or abandoning your post was crucifixion. Had anyone, a disciple or otherwise, shown up at the grave to steal the body, they would have been seen and been caught by Roman guards. So we know he was dead. And he didn't remove the stone and crawl away half dead. 
and we know that there is no way the body was stolen, at least not any time on the Sabbath. So then, what, maybe Sunday morning? It is possible. I mean, we don't know exactly what time the Marys arrived at the tomb. Um, There could have been time between sunup and when they arrived for the body to be stolen, right? Well, Luke tells us that Mary arrived at the tomb early, while it was still dark. Now, this would have been sometime at dawn in the early twilight hour, not while it was still night. See, the Jewish day started at sunup. So to be out before sunup, whoever stole the body would still be breaking Sabbath because it would still be the day before. So I don't see that as likely for all the previously stated reasons. So even if we do find a way to do away with the, quote, problem of the empty tomb, we still have the eyewitness accounts of Jesus after his death to contend with. There are several arguments, of course, to combat the eyewitness accounts. Let's take a look at two of those. The first is that it is a legend. It started with one person finding the empty tomb and out of grief saying they saw Jesus. And then this person told that person and this person and it kind of grew over time into a legend. I mean, these kinds of things do happen. A relatively innocuous event can turn into a tall tale and then eventually a legend or an entire mythology. But when we look at these kinds of events, historically, legends typically take hundreds of years to form, sometimes thousands. As we find more and more older and older manuscripts of the New Testament, this just doesn't hold true. When all we had was the Textus Receptus, it was easy to claim it was all legend. The oldest document we had was from the 3rd century. But we find older and older documents all the time. The oldest Christian creed we can trace back to within a few years of the crucifixion. A few months, depending on what dates you go by for Jesus' birth. Paul would have learned it from Peter and James when he was discipled by them in 34 AD. He passed this creed on as he planted churches and spread the gospel. It is first written in 1 Corinthians 15, which was written around 54 AD as the earliest letter of Paul. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. So, what he received from Peter and James. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve. The creed itself is simply this. Christ died for our sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. While it speaks of the resurrection, it is just a creed, and not an eyewitness account. Well, Mark was written around 56 AD, give or take a year, and the Passion Week in Mark, including the death and resurrection account, uh, is believed to be copied from an even older document we call Q that was written much earlier, possibly as old as a few years after the resurrection. So you can see that there was just not enough time for a legend to form. The second argument is the one I've been personally presented um, the most by um, detractors. 
and that is the idea of a mass hallucination. Um, they believed they saw Jesus, but never really did. Now, keep in mind, this would have to be quite the hallucination. So believable that the apostles were sure enough of his resurrection to die for it. Okay, I don't know any person ever who would die for something they were not 100% sure of. It's just how we're wired. Self-preservation is part of the human condition. So, let's look at this argument. They use as proof, or at least proof of probability, the millions of ghost sightings, UFO abductions, um, you know, cryptids like Bigfoot. They consider these things hallucinations as well and use the fact, in quotes, that millions, millions who are strangers to each other, no less, have very similar hallucinations to one another. Now, the fact is, very few psychologists believe that mass hallucinations are even possible. Because if a hallucination is created by chemicals in your brain, the, uh, the idea that everyone would have the same chemical imbalance in their brain at the same time as just astronomical. You know, I read an article that said it would be more, more improbable than the resurrection itself. So, uh, you know, but mass hysteria is a different story. Already under stress and duress, it is possible that they were all hysterical. But visions seen while in states of hysteria are rarely detailed. So if it was hysteria, we can look to the ash conformity experiment and see that under peer pressure and scrutiny, people will doubt their own senses. So even if it was some kind of hysterical vision under the torture and threats of death that Christians endured... Not to mention the peer pressure of the non-Messianic Jewish community surrounding them in society. Uh, they would have questioned these visions, eventually espousing them as nothing but hallucinations. So, if we look at the fact, the proof that we have the stonings, beheadings, and crucifixion of thousands of first century Christians through Roman and Jewish historians, we really need to ask ourselves... Okay, If the idea of God is at all plausible, I would say that the resurrection then becomes the most plausible explanation of the eyewitness accounts. The early Christian creeds, including the resurrection of Jesus and the thousands of Christians willing to die for this belief. There are many more arguments for the veracity of the, resurre the resurrection that you can look up. But that is not my purpose here at Reconstructed Faith. It is to look at why the resurrection is essential and why it is vital that we believe Jesus is alive and at the right hand of the Father awaiting his bride, which is the church, to rule heaven and earth with him for the rest of eternity. That's quite a future. So... Why spend so much time trying to prove the resurrection? Isn't it the crucifixion and the blood of Christ that ensures our salvation? Didn't we literally just cover this? I mean, we already proved that he was the Passover lamb, and we are saved from death. Well, 
the wages of sin is death, if you remember. So in order to conquer sin, you must also conquer death. It is vitally important we believe Jesus rose and lives. Jesus claimed to be God after all. He also said that he would rise. He even claimed that he was. He is life and resurrection. Let's look at these, if not just for the reason that we haven't used any scripture yet. Uh, Matthew 16, verses 1-4 through 4 in the LEB, that is the Lexham English Bible, because I feel like it. <laughs> verse 1. And uh, when the Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. So he answered and said to them, When evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather because the sky is red. And in the early morning, today it will be stormy weather because the sky is red and darkening. You know how to evaluate correctly the appearance of the sky? But you are not able to evaluate the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and a sign will not be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, if you remember the story of Jonah, he was swallowed by a great fish and stayed inside the fish for three days and was puked up on the shores of Nineveh. Now, what the Bible doesn't say, but is pretty obvious if you know how being eaten works, is that Jonah died, but was puked up alive. So, when Jesus says that the sign of Jonah will be given, it is a reference to dying and rising after three days. Let's look at his claims in Mark. They're a lot more straightforward. Um, I will use the ESV for these. Uh, Mark 8.31 And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Mark 9.31 For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. And then we have Mark 10.34, And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Over and over and over again, Jesus said these things would happen. And they did. Jesus did rise. So what does that mean for us? Well, Paul had a lot to say on this in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's look at that passage. This, interestingly enough, is just before the passage where Paul affirms the Christian creed, or the creed of the way, or maybe the credo Christus. I don't know if they had a name for it. Um, this is in the ESV again, starting at verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised for the debt from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, okay, check all of this out, then our preaching is in vain and your faith in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God 
because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here it is, the big point. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, and this this is Paul deferring to the beliefs of his audience and inferring Sheol, Hades theology, and Christ. So those that have died in their Christian faith have perished. He is saying they are gone because death is final. If in Christ we hope in this life only, we, are, we of all people must be pitied. He, uh, he's saying if our hope is in Jesus, but there is only this life, we deserve the most pity. There are no bigger fools than Christians. Then he turns it around in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. But wait, didn't he raise Lazarus? Hasn't there been resurrections in the past? Yes, but anyone raised back to life before Jesus eventually ran life's course and died again. Jesus not only rose from the dead, but he raised into eternal life as we all will on Judgment Day. When we are either let into the kingdom by our faith, where we will live forever also, or left outside to find our way to hell that is the second death. So this is what Paul means when he says that Jesus is the first fruits of those that have fallen asleep. He is the first one to be raised with his resurrection body that is free of entropy, disease, and the corruption of sin and will function for eternity and never fail. Verse 21. For as by a man came to death, by a man has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. Okay. So let me recap that and let the Bible make my point for me. If the wages of sin is death and Jesus didn't rise, then he too was under sin's power and is no savior at all. If the wages of sin is death, which it is, then in order to free us from sin, in order to defeat sin's hold over our lives, it is necessary requirement that Jesus conquer death, which is the final outcome of sin. Jesus rose. That means neither sin nor death have a hold on those who claim his blood as their atonement. This also proves his claims about himself to be true. He rose as he said he would, which means Jesus is the Son of God and God himself. Because he rose, we know that he is Lord even over death. Jesus is God. Amen. 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 To say more is to say too much. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to Reconstructed Faith, where we examine what we believe and question 
everything in order to understand it better. I hope that this has stretched your mind, touched your heart, and blessed your soul. And you are one step closer to reconstructed 